But as I said, today's sermon is the final sermon in the series we've been in. For the past six weeks, we've been exploring what I've called the afterwords of Scripture. These are the things that the Bible has said to us about what comes after this life. We've talked about eternity. We've talked about heaven and hell. We've talked about angels. Last week I talked about the resurrection of the body. And one theme that I hope that everybody has picked up on throughout this series is this. God is the ruler of all eternity. God is the ruler of all eternity. There's nothing that happens outside of his control or his power or his authority. That means that God is in control of our past. God is certainly in control of the present. And when it comes to what comes next, God is in control of the life that we will know after the life we know now. And recognizing that God's authority extends to what comes next, it extends to the afterwards of Scripture, is what has driven people throughout history toward religion. Religion of all kinds, religion of all types, shapes, and sizes. It makes sense that people would want to feel confident about their status in whatever comes after. And when it comes to Christianity, we, we too are in pursuit of that confidence. We usually describe that confidence with the word salvation. And that's what we want to look at today is the afterwards about salvation. When we say we are saved, what we usually mean by that is that God is going to take good care of me in whatever lies beyond this life, whatever you might believe or adhere to or or think about what comes next. To be saved means I believe God will be looking out for me. God will be making things right for me in what comes next. And here's how that traditionally has been expressed in the Christian faith. We say something to this effect. If I seek forgiveness for my sins and ask Jesus into my heart, then I will go to heaven. Something very similar to that is the gospel message that virtually all of us have encountered at one point or another. If I seek forgiveness for my sins and ask Jesus into my heart, then I will go to heaven. Most of us have probably at one point or another or many points throughout our lives heard the gospel presented this way. Perhaps going back to even when we were very, very young. And I would say this about that. I believe that statement to be accurate. I'm not going to pick apart that statement today. I'm not going to destroy your salvation. I'm not going to. That statement is true. It is accurate. It is good. It is helpful. But I think it is also incomplete and perhaps oversimplified. And I think it's suitable to an elementary explanation of God's plan for our lives, but it is certainly not sufficient to endure all of the ups and the downs and the challenges of real life. And I think that's one of the reasons that it sometimes doesn't seem to connect with people. It seems impractical. It seems irrelevant, or or, or as I said, maybe incomplete. If we haven't rethought this view of salvation, if we haven't plumbed the depths, the full depths of what the Bible says about salvation, then I believe we've done ourselves a grievous disservice. We are missing out. 
I've recently begun uh, watching the show Chicago Fire. I'm a little late to the party. I think it's nine or ten seasons old. I certainly can't stand here as your pastor and recommend it as a highly moral, family-friendly TV drama. But I've enjoyed some of the high-stakes drama of, of, of the firemen and their stories. If you're not familiar with the show, it centers on one particular firehouse in Chicago. Real, you know... Uh, very, a very exciting title for a show, isn't it? Chicago Fire. It's, it's all about a firehouse in Chicago. Very, very creative. The job of the firemen and, and women in this particular firehouse is, of course, to save people. Their job is to save people from fire and from other disasters. And this is actually a very specific biblical image of salvation. Jude chapter 23, I'm sorry, Jude verse 23 tells us that salvation looks sometimes like snatching people from the fire. Now in the Chicago fire story, although there's only one firehouse and and, and all the people involved are are firefighters, uh, there's actually three different units involved within this firehouse. There's the unit they refer to as truck. And truck, these are the guys that are kind of the classic firemen. They put on the hats and they put on the turnout gear and they get on their red fire truck and they have their ladders and they go to the fire and they get out their hoses and they squirt it with water and they put the fire out. That's what the guys on the truck unit do. But they aren't the only ones in the firehouse. There is also the rescue unit. The rescue unit also wear the turnout gear and they go to the disaster, they go to the fire, they go to the scene of whatever's happening, but they don't get out hoses and try and squirt out the fire. They go into the structure to rescue who's ever stuck there. They go, they're the people who are in charge of dragging the folks out and, and saving their lives that way. And then there's a third unit involved, it's the paramedics. They also are, are part of Chicago Fire Department. They are firefighters. They, they are in the firehouse, but their job is to arrive at the scene in the ambulance and provide medical assistance to anybody that might have been hurt, injured in whatever is happening. So you have truck, you have rescue, and you have the paramedics. And all three of them work together. It is a far more detailed description of what it is to be a firefighter than I think most of us had when we were kids. Right? We pictured the guys who dress up with the hard hats and they slide down the pole and they have a big red truck and they have a Dalmatian and they go to the place and they squirt, you know, the, the, the fire with their water and they're rescue heroes. Isn't that what we called them when we were kids? But, no, it's not. It's what I called them when I was a kid. They were rescue heroes. But we get a more detailed description of what they actually do in this show. All three units are necessary for a save to take place. All three units are needed if there's actually going to be a rescue. I want to just invite you to imagine what would happen if one of those units was missing. What if the guys from truck were missing? What if, what if the, the building was on fire and we called 911 and, and, and the firehouse arrived, but only the rescue unit and only the paramedics came? The guys from the rescue unit come into the burning building and they grab the people who are, how are, who are injured and wounded and they take them outside and, and the paramedics attend to them and they, and they save their lives. But meanwhile, their house burns to the ground and the fire spreads to their neighbors and, and pretty soon, yeah, they're alive, but everything around them is in flames. Is that really a salvation? What if, what if the rescue unit wasn't present? 
What if we called 911 and, and, and the firefighters came and the guys on, on the truck unit get off and they, they squirt their hoses and they put the fire out and the paramedics attend to whoever was lucky enough to get out of the building under their own power, but inside the wounded people die of smoke inhalation and flames because nobody ever bothered to go in the building and try and save them. Would that be a salvation? What if truck and rescue were on the scene, but the paramedics didn't come? What if we called 911 when the building was burning and, and the truck unit came and they extinguished the flames and the rescue unit came in and they saved people and they dragged them out and they left them on the sidewalk and went back to the firehouse while the wounded people died of their injuries? Would that be a salvation? None of it works unless it all works together. It's not really salvation unless everything is going on. It is incomplete. If anything is missing, then the salvation that is offered is of no real value. So let's make sure that when we talk about salvation, in a spiritual sense, let's make sure that as Christians, when we talk about the salvation that God offers, that nothing is missing. Because if anything is missing, it's of no real value. And doing so means we have to start with this. God saves us, but God saves us from something. God saves us. Salvation means that God saves us, but it starts by meaning he saves us from something. It's so common today for people, even Bible-believing Christians, to try and convince themselves that hell isn't real, or that God's love precludes God's judgment, or that people, all people, eventually find their way to God and therefore eventually find their way to heaven. There's an understandable desire, I get it, it's an understandable desire to believe that in the end, everyone gets saved. But I have to say this, the whole point of salvation is that we are being saved from something. And if, anybody, if everybody ends up in heaven anyhow, then there's really no such thing as salvation. Think about it this way. Imagine you're at the baseball game and you see the runner on first base and as the pitch is thrown, the runner on first base begins running because he's going to try and steal second. And the pitch arrives at home plate, the catcher pops up and he fires the baseball across the infield, the shortstop has come to second base, it's going to be a bang-bang play, the runner slides in, there's a cloud of dust, the shortstop swipes his mitt to apply the tag, and everybody waits for just a second. Where are we all looking in that moment? We're looking at the umpire. Because the umpire has watched the whole thing, he's stood a few feet away watching that bag, watching the base, watching the runner, watching the ball, and he's going to wait just an instant to make sure everything is as he saw it. And then all of a sudden, the umpire goes, you're off! And what happens when the umpire, I'm sorry, I'm right, I didn't mean to disturb you. What happens when the umpire yells, you're out? The runner pops up and he dusts off his pants and he trots off the field because he's out. He goes back to the dugout, right? That's how baseball works. Now imagine that he's trotting back to the dugout and the umpire hollers after him and says, Hey, buddy, where are you going? Where are you headed? And the runner says, Well, you called me out. I'm going back to the dugout. I'm out. And the umpire says, No, come on back and stand on second base. And the fielding team says, What are you talking about, Blue? You called him out. He can't come back, and the umpire says, no, 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 he can come back. I know I called him out, he was out, he got tagged, he's out, but he can come back because in this game, everybody gets home eventually. 
In this game, everybody gets home eventually. You and I know that the game doesn't really work that way. As it is, when a runner tries to steal second, there are only two possible outcomes, and they are very, very different. And that's why the runner was running so hard in the first place. Many of us in the church have been brought up to believe that the two possible outcomes in life are heaven or hell. And we've learned that salvation means that we've been saved from hell. And again, like I said earlier, I would say, well, that's true. But I think when we read the afterwards in the Bible about salvation, we find out that's really only part of the story. What does the Bible say about what we've been saved from? Well, the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, about this exact issue. He says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. He goes on a few lines later to say, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Can you read that again? They haven't nailed their passions and their desires. They are not robots devoid of passion. They are not robots devoid of uh, desire, but they have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to the cross where they are destroyed, they are crucified, and they are no more. This has happened. Do you see what's happening here? Salvation begins in this life. We are being saved right now in the present tense. We are being saved from the inevitability of living according to our sinful nature. Without the saving power of the Holy Spirit, there is no question that everyone alive will ultimately be drawn into the kind of life described in those verses. And what kind of life was that? Well, it was the, 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 the Mount Rushmore of our favorite sins. I mean, it was witchcraft. It was sorcery. It was S-E-X. It was all the good ones. But it was also division. It was also hatred. It was also envy. It was also some stuff that, boy, doesn't sound so hard to get sucked into. It was also stuff that doesn't seem quite as bad if we're being honest. But the Bible says we're driven there by our sinful nature. Without the saving power of the Holy Spirit, it's going to happen. And the problem isn't so much that living that kind of life will make God so, so angry at you that he's going to send you to hell. That's not what's going on here. The problem is that living that kind of life makes it impossible to get to the kingdom that we're trying to get to. What the Bible is saying here is you simply can't get there from here. There's no way to get there from here. And so thinking again about the baseball analogy, I don't think it's really so much that God is the umpire at second base, that he's just waiting for people to arrive so he can finally say, you're safe and you're out. 
I think in the baseball analogy, it's more helpful to think of God as the first base coach. He's standing there beside the runner, and he's saying to him, he's whispering to him, he's talking to him, and he's saying, here's where you run, here's when you run, and here's how you run, and if you do it the way I have coached you, you will arrive safely. He's saying, I've scouted the enemy, I know his habits, I know his tactics, and if you go on this pitch, you're going to be safe. But if you go the wrong direction, if you go the wrong time, if you go some way other than the way that I have told you, you just, you, you can't get there. And without God being that in that place, without God playing that role, the baseball game begins to look a little bit more like a little league game. Have you seen it? The little boy hits the ball and then takes off towards third base. He's running the wrong direction. Or maybe he goes the right way. Maybe he goes to first base, but he gets there and doesn't round and go to second. And he just keeps going in the right field. And it doesn't matter how fast he runs. It doesn't matter how hard he hit the ball. He's not going to get home. It doesn't matter how good I am. It doesn't matter how hard I try. It doesn't matter how sincere I am in what I believe. I'm not going to get home. If I'm not going where God told me to go, I'm not going to get home. You can't get there from here. And getting home safely is the goal. And that's why it's important to remember that not only has God saved us from something, God has saved us to something. The Bible doesn't say that God rescues us from our sinful nature and then dusts us off and stands us up and and then just lets us go on our own again. That is not what the Bible says. There's a video that appeared in my um, social media feeds a bunch a couple of months back. I wish I had saved it. I wish I could show it to you today. Maybe you saw it as well. It went viral for a while. It was a short little 30-second video of a sheep that got himself stuck in a narrow little trench. I think it was somewhere in Russia. There was some kind of trench. Maybe it was a storm sewer or something. A narrow little trench, and this sheep had taken a a header right into the trench and was stuck, just wiggling and trying to get out. And a little boy had discovered the sheep. And about the only thing he could grab hold of on the sheep was the sheep's hind legs. And so this video is of this boy pulling on the sheep, pulling on the sheep, trying to free him from this trench that he's gotten himself stuck in. And he pulls and he pulls and he yanks and he tugs and the sheep is just not trusting it, not having it at all. The sheep is kicking and twisting and squirming each in every way, and finally the little boy pulls the sheep out of the trench, and the sheep kicks and lets go, and bounds about three big bounds, 20 feet down the road, and takes a nosedive right back into the trench. <laughs> That's what salvation would look like if God had saved you from something without saving you to something. Right back in the trench. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 puts it this way. It says, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. And then let us go so we could dive right back in. No. He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Do you read this? The transfer has already taken place. He has done it. Not he will do it. Not he might do it. Not we're looking forward to the day when he will do it. No, 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 no. For he has rescued us 
from the kingdom of darkness. And he has transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. Salvation means that a transfer has taken place. Can I say that a different way? Salvation means that a change has already taken place. Saved people are different. And you say, Pastor, be careful because you're getting awful close to preaching that salvation is a matter of the works we do. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that salvation is a matter of the works we do. The Bible is very clear that we are saved by grace, the grace of God, and it is not by works that we do that we are saved. It is wholly and completely the saving grace of God that ensures our salvation. But what I am saying is that God's grace changes people. Amen. And they're different. God's grace changes people. So our differences are very, very real. Our differences aren't what save us but they are evidence that we have been saved. And there's a very practical reason for that change. There's a very practical reason for those differences. Because in the Bible, in addition to being saved from something and being saved to something, the Bible says God saves us for something. God saves us for something. I, um, I don't like to save things. I have the spiritual gift of throwing things away. That's, that's really my strength and, and my ability and my talent. When I'm done with it, I want it gone. I want to throw it away. I want to give it away. I want to donate it. I want it gone. I'm a cleaner up. Can I get a hearty amen from my people in this tribe? Thank you. Hallelujah. May our tribe increase. Um, in my house, Sue is built differently. <laughs> Sue is a saver. Sue is not the savior, but she is a saver. And so when we are going through the house, I'm the guy picking things up and saying, let's get rid of this. I'm going to throw this away. I'm going to find somebody who can use it. I'm going to take it to Salvation Army. I'm going to do it. Let's get rid of this. And Sue says, no. no. And why does she say no? I've spent 17 years trying to figure it out. But it's dawned on me, she says no because she says, I can still use it. I can still use it. I go, oh my goodness, how do you think you're gonna use this? And sure enough, sure enough, somewhere down the road, she'll pull the thing out. I can still use this. This thing that you wanna get rid of still has a useful purpose. Can you hear this today? God saved you because he believes you still have a useful purpose. God saved you because he believes you have a useful purpose. If you want to look into my family and find an image of godliness, don't look at me, look at my wife. He saved you because he believes you have a useful purpose. And the Bible describes that purpose. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says, In all of this, he's describing salvation, the salvation that we have. All of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task. Could we say this purpose? 
of reconciling people to him. He goes on a line later to say, so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Come back to God. We are living out our God-ordained purpose. Why? Because we're these great evangelists? No. Why? Because we're, you know, kind of those eccentric, passionate, crazy people who can't stop talking about, well, maybe, but no, that's not the reason. Why are we like that? We're like that because we've been saved. That, it's as simple as that. We've been saved. We've been saved from something. We've been saved to something, but we've been saved for something. And so this is what we do. You cannot know the fullness of salvation unless you are in community on mission. It's not a real popular thing to be talking about these days, right? But I believe this is what the Bible says quite clearly. You cannot know the fullness of salvation unless you are in community on mission. If you believed that God saved you, you can't afford to live the rest of your life just waiting to cash in your ticket to heaven. People say, well, all I need is Jesus. I don't think that's what the Bible says. To get saved, to be saved from something, yes, Jesus is sufficient. But he didn't just save you from something, he saved you for something. He saved you for something. Too many Christians are focusing their lives on keeping a low profile and trying just not to goof up too badly. And folks, they're missing out. They are missing out. God saved you for something. You have a purpose. So let's get to the heart of the issue. Talked about salvation three different ways this morning. But it all leads back to the most important, most relevant question about salvation, and it's simply this. How can we be saved? If this is the truth, then how can we be saved? On that first great sermon in the New Testament after the ascension of Christ on Pentecost morning when when Peter and the apostles come into the city of Jerusalem and preach the gospel, the good news of salvation, it leads right to the question. Those that heard him there said, then how can we be saved? And here we are 2,000 years later essentially asking and trying to answer the same question. How can we be saved? And there are likely many, if not most, in this room who already believe themselves to be saved. And let me be very clear about this. It is not my purpose here to call that belief into question. If you are saved today, I do not want you to leave this room questioning your salvation. I want you to leave this room more confident in your salvation. But just like that little boy who wants to grow up and be a a fireman rescue hero someday, anybody who wants to be saved should, from time to time, deepen their understanding of all that it entails. Can you imagine... (laughs) Can you imagine a young man showing up at the firehouse, having been uh, accepted, going, you know, taking the exam, doing whatever, he's ready for his training, and he shows up and says, where's my fire pole and my domination? I'm here to squirt the fire. And they say, oh my goodness, is that still what you think this is all about? I mean, we all started on that journey. That's where we all started when we were three years old. But brother, it's time to grow up. 
It's time to grow up. And to the church today with a capital C, I think the word of the Lord is it's time to grow up. It's time to grow up. The victims of the house fire don't necessarily understand all the nuances of the fire department policy and procedure when the rescuers arrive. It's okay. They don't have to. And when you initially got saved, you might not have realized all the policies and procedures. You might not have realized that God was saving you from something or to something or for something. But you know what? Now you do. Now you understand what you might not have understood back then. It's time to take things to another level. So what does the Bible actually say with regards to the question in front of us? How then are we saved? I think one of the best examples comes from Romans chapter 10. I want to read to you beginning in verse 6. Faith's way of getting right with God, salvation, says, don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven in order to bring Christ down to earth. And, and don't say who will go down to the place of the dead in order to bring Christ back to life again. Let me pause there for just a moment. In other words, what's being said here is the mystery of salvation is not as distant as we sometimes make it seem. Paul is saying to the Romans, if you want to understand what salvation looks like, there's no need to focus on heaven and hell. Instead, in fact, it says the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. Here it is. Drum roll, drum roll please. Verse 9. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let me read that one more time. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. So let me say this about that. I do not think, I do not think that the Bible is giving us a simple formula here saying if you check this box and then you check this box, then God will check that box. I don't think that this is not formulaic salvation here. I think the Bible is painting us a portrait. How can we be saved? And scripture says, let me tell you what that looks like. And there's two elements in that portrait. He says, openly declare that Jesus is Lord. This means this, live according to the Lordship of Jesus. Instead of lordship, if we don't like that word, we could say live according to the unquestioned authority of Jesus. That element's got to be in the portrait. Live according to the unquestioned authority of Jesus. And the second part that said believe in your heart that God raised him from, his dead, from the dead. Orient your life towards God's promise of new life. Orient your entire life toward God's promise of new life. It's not about intellectual ascension saying, in my mind, I believe that one day, 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked out of a tomb. Because I checked off that box, God's gonna check off this box. That's not what's going on here. The Bible is saying, orient your entire life, believe in your heart. 
about God's promise of new life, the evidence of which we saw in a garden 2,000 years ago. Salvation, then, isn't a matter of a prayer that I prayed one time or an abstract belief that I hold. Salvation is about the very real issue of who has authority in your life and how that life is oriented. And and here's the thing about this. In my mind, hey, Robert, back it up, because I want to see those two things again. Put those two things back on the screen. Those two things, I don't think I can accomplish either one of them in a single moment. I don't think I can fully live into either one of those things in one particular moment. So often we talk about salvation, repeat these words after me and you will be saved. I think it's got to be deeper than that. I think it's got to be richer than that. I think, as I have said so many times over the course of the last six weeks, I think the truth is so much more wonderful than what we first believed or assumed. Neither of these things can be demonstrated in a single moment, but they can be started in a single moment. I can make a decision, but it's going to take a lifetime to develop to mature, and to complete. And here's the other thing I want to point out just quickly here. Neither of these things on the screen, neither of them are predicated, thank God, on me being smart enough to figure things out. I think the church today has made the mistake of turning salvation into an intellectual exercise. We ask people questions, do you understand this? If this happened to your life, what would happen next? And we try and intellectually logicize one another into the kingdom. And when I look at what the word of God says, I'm overwhelmed with the idea that this is not an intellectual exercise. Does doctrine matter? Of course doctrine matters. Does knowing the word of God matter? Of course knowing the word of God matters. But I'm not saved based on how much I figure out. It's a good thing God did it that way. Because he is not just trying to save grown-ups who have a decent head on their shoulders. I don't know why I'm pointing to myself when I say that. God is not just trying to save grown-ups who know how to think logically. God is saving babies. God is saving kids. God is saving people with dementia and other diseases. God is saving the disabled. God is saving everyone. And there is no entry exam saying you have to know this much before we can share the gospel with you. Because it's not a matter of how much you or I can figure out. It's just a matter of who's the Lord in your life. And in what direction is your life oriented? Some of us are running off in the right field like that little boy in, in, in the Little League game going, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved. And the team's going, I, I, I don't think so. <laughs> what direction is the life oriented? 
I want to invite the worship team to come back to the platform because we are going to have them minister to us as we conclude service today. I, I want to conclude today, this probably isn't a surprise to anybody who's been in, in church before, I want to conclude a message like this with a prayer for salvation. We talked about salvation. Let's put it out there. Let's, let's get some people saved today. Amen? Amen? I want to conclude today with a prayer for salvation, but in light of everything that we've read and everything that we've looked at, everything that I've tried to share with you that I believe the Lord is saying to us today, instead of a prayer that focuses on a few doctrinal points, uh, the perfection of God, the, the problem of sin, uh, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, and then arrives at some sort of vague request that we make of God, uh, come into my heart, draw me close, make me yours. Rather than a prayer like that, not that there's anything wrong with that, I just think it's time to take it to another level. Instead, I want us to hear together a song that is going to give us a language to prayerfully receive the salvation that God provides for us. So Jenna's prepared a song today. The words are going to be on the screen, not so that we can sing it together, because most of us probably don't know this song. I, I didn't know it when she played it for me. But I thought, wow, these, these are the words that describe what God is doing in our lives. God's power to save us from our old nature, our old way of being. God's power to change us to a new creature, to something new. And God's power to empower us for his purposes. And so as Jenna sings today, could you just make this your prayer? And could we all lean in, step in, and live in to the salvation that God provides for us?
feel like there's two groups of people that might be hearing this message today that need a, a handhold to respond to it. And the first is those folks that might take stock of their lives and say, there was never really a moment when I could call myself saved. In the story of the fire department, I identify with the person in the burning building. I feel at some level that I'm surrounded with flames and I don't know the way out. And maybe I've heard people talk about Jesus before. I've heard people talk about Buddha or Allah or God or religion or faith. But I've never gone there because I've just never believed it. It sounded like a story. And I don't need a story. I'm dying here. I don't need a story. I need a savior. And if that's you today, I want to tell you that it does not require, the word of God does not require you to come to this altar and kneel down. Though you're welcome to do that. It doesn't require that I put my hands over you and pray over you. I'd love to do that. It doesn't require that you stand up in this room and say, I once was lost, but now I found no we would celebrate a crazy if that all happened. What's required is, did you hear the words God says? And then you yield to them. And then look for change. Because he's not just changing, he's saving you from whatever your from is. He's saving you to something. And look for the empowerment because he's saving you for something. And be a part of this community that, that celebrates that and calls it out in each other. That's, that's you. That's for you today. But I feel like there's a second group of people that would say, I'm saved. I mean... I got the, the date written down in my Bible, and I remember when I prayed the prayer, and I've been going to church for X number of years or whatever. But there's a part of my life that, if I'm just going to be honest, has always felt insufficient. And I recognize that today it's because I only ever met the cartoon fireman with Dalmatian and a fire pole and a swimming hose. The only God I ever knew was this very elementary idea of salvation that was presented to me when I was a spiritual baby. And life has gotten so much more real than that, and there's a distance there. It just doesn't feel right. And so I come to church and I look up and down the aisle and I see sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so with their hands raised shouting their amens. I see them all excited. I see them, you know, I get it. They're changed. They're, they're, they're empowered, but that's never been my story. I don't know that Savior.
Church, my word for you today is he's here. He's, he's here. He's here. There is a great big Savior here today. And no matter what your past is, no matter what your experiences are, no matter what your perspective on faith and salvation and what comes next, no matter what that has ever been, no matter what the insufficiencies of my own words have been, don't listen to my words today. Open your heart and your spiritual ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to you. He is sufficient. He is sufficient. I don't want you to question the salvation that you've known in the past. Your pastor's not telling you, well, you're only fake safe. You're not really going to <laughs> No, that's not the message today. The message today is let's take this baby up a notch. Amen. Let's take it to another level. Let's take your salvation out into the highway and open it up and see what it can do. How many metaphors can I mix today, right? <laughs> Let's go to a new level. Because God's got a purpose for you. God's got a purpose for you. And a salvation that misses out on any of those things that we've talked about today, trust me when I say, we've all been there. A salvation that misses out on any of those things is incomplete. Incomplete. I want more than that for us. So would you pray this prayer with me, Father? We hear your words today. And our prayer, in whatever language and whatever metaphor you give us, it's not terribly important. But it's similar to what Jenna sang for us today. New one come out of us. We have tried so many different ways to figure this thing out. And a lot of us, I think, have been stuck in that cycle of intellectual salvation. What exactly is it that I have to believe? What exactly is it that I have to know? What exactly is it that I have to say? God, show us a greater thing today. Show us a truer thing today. Show us a more wonderful thing today. Make us new creatures today. Make us new creatures today. Lord, we see in faith believing now that the population of eternity is growing in this moment. Both because in the, the scope of the ministry that's happening here, people are entering into that new kingdom. Lord, you are signing transfer papers right now. But Lord, you are also empowering us for that mission that we would be the ones who with our very lives would say, come back to We receive the salvation that you have given today. And we trust in the salvation that you have given today. 
May you empower us and strengthen us. We ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody says, Amen. Amen. I'm going to give a dismissal, but I'm wondering as we go today, as you stand up and greet one another, Jenna, could you just sing us out? Yeah. I'd love to hear these words as we dismiss. Have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful Sunday morning.